Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, of course, you know it and you love it. Oh my God, I cannot wait for you guys to hear this week's episode. 126, part one. Yes, we have two parts because this conversation was A, so great, and B, it went so long with veteran spotter Chris Lambert. He spots for Denny Hamlin in the Cup Series, three-time Daytona 500 champion, two-time Southern 500 champion, an unbelievable dude, unbelievable conversation. It was it was so good. We touched on so many topics that we had to make it two parts. Part one coming to you right here, right now, today. Plus, we'll talk about Bristol, baby. Holy bejesus, what a race. Preview Las Vegas and everything in between. But before we do any of that, we got to pay homage to the number 26. And to do that is Papa Siegel with this week's Wayback segment. Thank you, Dove, and welcome everyone to episode 126. Today we focus our Wayback lens on one of the greatest NASCAR legends. Robert Glenn Johnson Jr. was the fourth of seven kids born to Laura Bell and Robert Glenn Johnson, thus the nickname Jr., His father was a lifelong bootlegger who spent 20 years in jail following numerous raids by federal revenue agents. Junior himself spent a year in jail for having an illegal still, but he never was caught running moonshine despite numerous high-speed chases. I'm guessing he was as proud of that little factoid as he was of his considerable racing accomplishments. Most of you likely know and remember Junior Johnson as a successful car owner who won six championships with Cale Yarbrough and Darrell Waltrip. Johnson's accomplishments as a car owner are worth an episode of its own. My favorite, Bobby Allison, also drove for him. But you may not be aware of how great a driver he was. He won 50 cup races over an 18-year career, his last dozen wins, came in the 26 car in 1965. Did you know that Junior was the first driver to figure out how to use a leading car's slipstream to increase the following car's speed? He did it in 1960 at Daytona and used it to pass a faster car on the last lap to win that year's 500. Drafting was invented and super speedway racing would never be the same. Johnson retired as a driver in 1966 and, I believe, is still the winningest driver to not have won a championship. But for me, Johnson's moonshine-running backwoods Carolina persona is what endeared him to so many NASCAR fans and contributed to the popularity of the sport. In 1965, Tom Wolfe wrote an article about Johnson for Esquire magazine. The article originally was titled Great Balls of Fire, 
and turned Johnson into a national celebrity beyond NASCAR. It was reprinted in David Halberstam's book, The Best American Sports Writing of the Century, in 1999, is a must-read for true NASCAR fans, and I'll add sports journalists covering the sport, hint, hint, and was made into a 1973 movie starring Jeff Bridges titled The Last American Hero. Johnson himself served as a technical advisor for the film. Junior Johnson was named one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1988, and he was inducted into the inaugural class of the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2010. He died in 2019 after an 88-year life well-lived. That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad, for this week's Wayback segment and um, got dinner with him and my mom the other night. And he told me that in a couple weeks for episode 128, I'm going to have to give him some more time because 28 is the number of one of, if not his favorite driver of all time. So I will I will leave the floor to you for episode 128, Dad. Let's start this episode off as we always do with a good old-fashioned... Coming to you live from the closet once again this week, party people. Bass Pro Shops NRA Night Race from Bristol Motor Speedway. Holy freaking bejesus. That's the first thing I have in my notes. What an insane race on so many levels. You had Harvick versus Elliott, which obviously has and will overshadow the great racing that we saw and overshadow the fact that Kyle Larson kind of won the race. Yeah, kind of. It's the sixth win of the season for Young Money, and he did it with a little helping hand from one of his friends at Hendrick Motorsports, the driver of the nine car, that being Chase Elliott. We'll get to that. But here was Larson. After the race, he was already locked into the round of 12 on points. But to win the Bristol night race, that's a big deal for him. He talked about it here. And the race overall, that crazy, crazy finish. Good race uh, from start to finish for us. Um, our car was really fast, um, really loose uh, for five laps. And it would get good and then loose again and then good again. Um, and then be pretty good at the end of the run. The second last run we had there that long one I was really good so um thought I was gonna be good again there that last run but I just wasn't I didn't have the front turn that I needed and um just tried staying patient with everything and try not to over overheat my tires and abuse them and just give myself a shot and um we were able to stay close enough to Kevin and you know Chase was obviously upset with the contact and and was just making making things kind of tough on him and it it kept me in the game and um you able to you know, make some moves on there late. So, um, yeah, fun race there. Have always wanted to win here. So cool to cool to finally do it. Of course, also being overshadowed by the Harvick and the Elliott stuff for good reason. I might add, were the four drivers that were eliminated after this round, the round of sixteen: Tyler Reddick of RCR, Michael McDowell of Front Row Motorsports, Kurt Busch of Chip Ganassi Racing, and Eric Amarola of Stuart Haas Racing. Just going over those four real quick: McDowell. We expected that, right? He was just kind of happy to be there. Almirola, don't think that was necessarily a surprise. Although when you saw what his team did on Saturday night, getting that car fixed with the oil line, staying on the lead lap, and running back inside the top five, you thought that they may be good to go, but they just fell off real, real big time towards the end, and they did not make it. Tyler Reddick, again, he was one of those guys that was going to be a make-it-or-break-it type of driver in the round of 16, so not necessarily a huge surprise that he missed 
And on paper, it's not a big surprise that Kurt Busch missed either. But knowing his track record at Bristol, seeing where he was in terms of the cutoff line heading into this race and what happened with the drivers behind him, all he really needed to do is score a top 10 finish. Probably would have been good to go, but the one team completely missed it. Everything and everything about that race car was not hitting on all cylinders that night. So they unfortunately eliminated as well. Okay, let's get into the nitty gritty, the meat and potatoes of this episode and this race. Chase Elliott versus Kevin Harvick. What happened? Well, if you didn't watch the race, A, what the hell are you doing? Go watch it. B, here's what happened. Chase Elliott gets his tire cut down by Kevin Harvick in the middle of the turns because Kevin Harvick was trying to pass him, had a faster car, could not get by, used the lap car of Josh Bilicki as a pick, and he gets around him somewhat. Chase Elliott stays on Kevin Harvick's right rear quarter panel. Harvick runs him up the hill, makes some contact, cuts down the left front tire, Chase has to pit, goes multiple laps down, chance at a win gone. Chase is pissed. Very, very pissed. As I said in my TikTok this week, uh, verbatim, he said, I'm tired of that bleep. He does that to me every bleeping week. And then Kevin Harvick, he's winning the race, right? Kyle Larson's closing in on him. Chase Elliott comes back out on fresh tires, doors him on the front straightaway, or back straightaway, whichever one it was, and then kind of parks himself in the top lane, trying to hinder Harvick's ability to pull away or keep Larson at bay. Chase Elliott does that pretty well. Kevin Harvick ends up giving up the top spot to Kyle Larson with about a couple laps to go. Larson goes on to the victory. Chase Elliott influences the finish of the race, rightly or wrongly. That is up to interpretation. Kevin Harvick finishes second. He is not happy. They come onto pit road. Chase takes his helmet off. Kevin keeps it on, which I wrote on frontstretch.com this week why keeping the helmet on is not a big freaking deal, and everybody that thinks it's a big deal needs to get the hell over it. It's such a dumb argument. Anyway, um, they were not pleased with each other, and they said as much. They talked about it, not once, but twice. Once on pit road, once in the garage area. You guys see Harvick slam his helmet? Oh, my God. I, I've not seen him that mad in a long, long time. And you guys know me, right? Like, I had been a Harvick fan in a previous life. And I had remembered all these times when he was really mad. Ricky Rudd, Greg Biffle, Kyle Busch, Joey Logano, the list goes on and on. I've not seen him that mad in a long time, maybe ever. And the one thing that kind of came to me was it's kind of good to see some bad blood, some high temper, some passion back in the sport. And you know what What kind of makes all this happen? Bristol, baby. Of course it does. It's, it's an unbelievable racetrack. Put on an unbelievable show. It wasn't too long of a race either. You end up having a great finish, not just on Saturday, by the way, and we'll get to Saturday and Friday with the Xfinity and trucks, but God, it was just so, so good. Larson, he had a great car. Harvick probably had a better car. Chase was probably the third best car, and he was not happy with how Harvick treated him. He made his displeasure very well known and noted, and the two did not agree. But they talked about it like adults. There was no fisticuffs that were thrown. Um, I want to say one thing as well. It's good to see bad blood, high tempers, and passion back. I do not like the fact that Josh Jones, who is a great guy, you know, love Josh Jones, mother function, get out the way. For real. And, and I don't know if it's like built into his contract with Kevin. If it's like, well, if there's a post-race altercation, he has to be there to back him up or, or whatever. I, I don't know. But I tweeted after the race, and Dave Moody responded too, said, you know, he's been saying it for years, which he has. 
I wish that there were hockey rules implemented for post-race altercations, whether it's a fight or a disagreement, whatever. Like, let the drivers talk it out with nobody else near them. No officials, no law enforcement, no pit crew members, no media members, nobody besides the driver and the driver. Mono e mano. And if they decide to fight, fine, let them fight. As soon as one of them hits the ground, hits the deck, that's when you bring in the reinforcements, whether it be the PR people, the media members, the law enforcement, the officials, whatever. But I am i don't like to see this huge gaggle of people. I'm not even talking from a COVID perspective. Just get your vaccines, people. I don't even like to see this huge gaggle of people in the middle of these two drivers having a disagreement when it's their disagreement to have. It's not the pit crew member's fault or their place to jump in. It's not It's not the PR member or the, the business manager's place to jump in here. Like, let the drivers just talk it out and do their thing. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, but it just kind of, like, grinds my gears the wrong way. It's like, let the drivers talk it out, please. And also, by the way, I doubt you're listening, Jordan Bianchi, but if you are, this is me clapping on my stomach because I'm holding a microphone with one hand. Good job by you, my friend. I was texting you after the race, obviously, uh, and I include you in my TikTok. Hope you enjoyed that. You said you did. Hope you mean that. Thank you for watching. You were doing your job, man. Uh, that's going to become a meme for years and years to come. Seeing Jordan being told to basically buzz off by Kevin, puts his phone down, puts it back up, comes back again, puts your phone down, okay, puts it down, puts it back up again, and then is finally escorted out by some random dude in a t-shirt, and I don't know who that was or what that was about, but holy Jesus, it's Bristol, baby. God, that was an amazing race. And it wasn't the only amazing race of the weekend. Xfinity may have been the best race that I have seen in years. Like, literal, years. Like, forever. And I, I've only been watching NASCAR since, I don't know, 2001. So, take it with a grain of salt. 20 years, and I'm 25 years old. But I cannot remember a race that was as good as that. It was so damn good. Start to finish. And the finish specifically, right? Like, that's what people are going to remember for really good reason. But that is what people are going to remember. So you can't take, you can't not take it into account. You know what I mean? AJ Allmendinger gets the W barely over Austin Sindrick, crashing, coming to and going across the start finish line, hitting the inside wall, getting beamed by cars in turn one on the banking. Oh my God. I, I don't remember the last time the winner was interviewed in the infield care center at the same time that they win the regular season championship. But hey, AJ Allmendinger likes to do things with some style, some pizzazz, some flash. And boy, did he do that and then some. How about AJ Allmendinger, regular season champion in the Xfinity Series and winner at Bristol? To get a win here at Bristol is something I've always dreamed of. And am I, I don't know how many more opportunities I'm going to get. So when Austin gave the inside there, I knew I was going to be aggressive. And, you know, we touched off of four coming to the white and. You know, at that point when we got got together, I checked up. I didn't I didn't want to wreck him for the win, so I I checked up and that allowed Algar to get under us and he come charging in and got into the 22 and I cleared them and I thought you know I was I was more than ready for Austin to kind of come return the favor, so I kind of drove into three deep and I get was getting tight in the rubber there, so I kind of drove into three deep just trying to get a diamond going and he did a great job to to check up early and try to get the run off and. I knew he was going to run, you know, get in the side of me and try to loosen me up and try to beat me the line. And that was a, that was a big hit. So, you know, I think uh, tomorrow and, and Sunday I'll, I'll be 
really proud. I am really proud of, of what we have done in this regular season. Uh, it's just kind of strange. You don't like, I've never wanted to end it like that. Like where you're, you're crashing across the start finish line. And, you know, Austin Sendrick has made me step my game up all year. And it's, he's made me a better race car driver. I got so much love for Roger and, and team Penske. So, you know, that's not the group that I want to have that happen with, but, you know, I know he's going to be a contender in the, in the championship and the regular season is a big deal. The bonus points are a big deal. So, you know, I've made the promise to Matt Collig and Chris Rice and all the men and women at Collig Racing that when there's an opportunity to win a race, I'm going to try to go get it. And if I don't, then I shouldn't be in the race car. So I'm um, a little bittersweet the way it ended like that, but really proud of, of our regular season. And the trucks were damn good, too. Chandler Smith wins for the first time in his truck series career. Did his teammate John Hunter Nemechek let him get the win? He says no. John Hunter does. I'm not so sure. Anyways... Regardless of what you think, whether or not John Hunter pulled over, whether or not Chandler roughed him at the way, he is on to the round of eight for the Camping World Truck Series. A round that he honestly did not really think he would be in going into the race because he was kind of in a win or go home scenario. Regardless, he gets it done. Both Kyle Busch Motorsports trucks into the round of eight. All week I've been talking about 2019 when I finished second to Brett Moffat and uh, what I would have done different to win that race because these things are so hard now to win and it's incredible the amount of work and just how much the competition is right. Same people, just, everybody's just got a lot better. I haven't done anything really different since 2019. So I've uh, been having to work my butt off, uh, doing a lot more sim time, working out a lot and doing everything, watching film um, to get this win. My uh, faith has been tested incredibly and uh, God's timing is always right. So Also got to give the flowers to Ty Gibbs and Sammy Smith who wins the Arkham Nard Series East Championship. Ty Gibbs, his Joe Gibbs Racing teammate, wins, I think, the 10th time in Arca this season. Sammy Smith going to be on the show in the next couple weeks, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. But, man, like, Bristol's so freaking good. God, it's so good. And I know there's been a lot of arguments and chatter about, oh, well, Bristol should be the championship race moving forward. Hell, yeah, it should be. I'm down. And I know I wrote about this on Front Stretch, too. I know that there's some some complications with logistics, with weather, with ISC versus SMI, giving up a date, he, all this different stuff going on. All I want to know is that it may be a pipe dream, as Denny Hamlin said, but I can't have that dream that Bristol will be the championship race one day. Could you imagine, just imagine, the crowd that shows up, the intensity that's there, the racing that we see, what's on the line? Oh, God, it would be so good interview time i'm so excited so so excited for you guys to hear my chat with chris lambert veteran spotter for denny hamlin in nascar on the cup series level he also has spotted for over 20 years he's been around racing pretty much his entire life and oh my god we dove into all of it on this conversation again this is part one of our convo because he gave me nearly two full hours i I don't know anybody else that would give me two full hours of their time when they're in the midst of a playoff battle running for the championship as the new round of the playoffs is starting, but Chris did exactly that. I'm so thankful for it. Part one of this conversation has so much information. We talked about how he got started in the sport, uh, why he chose spotting instead of another career within the sport, how many hats he wears as a spotter, being able to multitask, and why... Sometimes you need to be a little bit of a psychiatrist and be a punching bag at times, regardless of if it's your fault or if it's not. 
Plus his experience with Red Bull Racing, he says that that was one of the best experiences of his racing career and in his life in general, even though they basically straight up said that they're a marketing team that just decided to have race cars. So I'm excited for you guys to hear that part of the conversation. And next week when we have him back on for part two of the conversation, it is a much different tone. It's much more serious, but it's much more reflective and an important conversation that we have regarding some personal events that happened in his life. I'm excited for you guys to hear part two, but I'm really excited for you guys to hear part one right now of my conversation with veteran spotter in NASCAR, Chris Lambert. A real honor and a pleasure to welcome on a veteran atop the spotter stand this week to the show, Chris Lambert, veteran spotter for Denny Hamlin in the Cup Series. And I know that Chris has spotted a ton of other drivers in his career, and we'll get to all of that. But first and foremost, I think you actually have the wonderful dignitation, Chris, of being the first spotter to appear on my show. So congratulations. You won an award and you didn't even know it. Well, wow, that's uh, that's or thanks for having me, Davey, obviously, first off. But that's that's really cool. Um, I've obviously <laughs> followed your your career over the last several years and, and been keeping up with your podcast. So that's that's an honor to have. Have you actually been listening? I can't tell. I really stories. have. I really have. I seriously have. Wow. That's when I go on my runs or when I'm outside mowing, I, I typically I'm a podcast guy. So whether I'm yeah. in the airplane flying somewhere or if I'm outside running or something, that's I'd rather listen to a podcast than I would listen to music. So that's that's typically what I do. Well, I'm the same way as you. And you just made my day. You know how to get me all riled up. So thank you, Chris. I appreciate nice. that. Speaking of uh, going on runs, doing normal things in lives, you know, before we started recording, I was asking you, what does a cup spotter in the middle of the playoffs do on a Thursday morning? Well, you've been dealing with some some home issues because your son had a big old tire blowout, so you've been looking for some tires to replace. So spotters, they're just like us, everybody. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's uh, it changes from week to week and day to day. But last night started a, a process that I wasn't expecting, and it's been a busy morning. Yes, yes, it has been. Well, let's get into you and your career, Chris, because. For some people, they know about you, but some other people that may not have done all the research or read all these different articles and know you and your backstory, there's a lot to unpack, and it's a really interesting career. So let's dive headfirst right into it. You've been spotting for around 20 years at this point, which is kind of crazy to think about. Tell us the story about how you got started being the eye in the sky and spotting race cars. Well, years ago... Um Mike Herman Jr., who actually is a spotter at this cup level as well for the 17 car for Chris Boucher and Roush Racing, um, he was him and I grew up together in Kannapolis, went to school together. He was a year ahead of me in school, but uh, we became really good friends. And when we graduated high school, um, I actually went to work for him, working on his late model stock cars and Hooters Pro Cup cars at the time, mm -hmm. keeping up his, his race cars. And his cousin had always done the spotting for us, and I was just a general mechanic and kept kept the cars up and. Um, but his cousin was also a, a high school football coach in the local area here. And when we started expanding out and running on Thursdays and Friday nights as well, on top of Saturdays, uh, Danny couldn't be there. So um, me being the only full-time employee that we had, I sort of just got thrown into the, into the spotting game as well. And um, I want to say the first two races that we ran, we actually won. Yeah. Uh, but I spotted that we actually won. So, um, it just worked out to where I just sort of took over the spotting range as well, especially when we moved up to running the Hooters Pro Cup Series and was traveling. So um, just trial by fire, just, hey, man, there's there, there's a job for you. You got to go do it. So, Yeah, I think it's kind of funny, too, because like you mentioned, that's Danny Crosby. He couldn't spot one night. You get 
thrust into the spotter stand. You win back-to-back races, and I guess, like they say, the rest is history. All you knew was winning at that point, so you're like, hey, it's pretty fun. I'm pretty good at this. Yeah, it, it was it was different. I mean, obviously, I had done practices over the years, but never done a race. And actually, the first race we won was at Concord Motorsport Park, which is oh, shut cool. down now, unfortunately, down here in Concord. But that was our local track. At the time, we were running Hickory full-time and not running Concord. <clears throat> but um, I actually about gave the race away because I – I thought we were racing somebody that was well, who I thought was running second wasn't running second, Uh-oh. and it was actually Ryan Zek who who works at 600 Racing now, and Ryan had taken over second, and I thought he was a lap down, and he was catching us there at the end of the race. So I I about gave the race away, not understanding <laughs> and not paying attention to what was going on, but luckily we ended up winning, and and like you said, the rest is history. So how long ago was that? Because you remember it like it was yesterday. That was in 1996. All right, uh, I'll make you feel old, but that's the year I was born. Oh wow, that's <laughs> yes, yeah. I I was born in '74, so um, uh-huh. I wasn't too far out of high school, and uh, we we had come down here for a special race at Concord, and um, and just got thrown into the fire. And then the next year, we actually started running Concord full time for track points and championships and stuff. So, see, it was a fun two and a half, three years that I worked for him. So you know, like race car drivers never forget, and people always use that mantra, right? But I guess it also applies to you guys atop the spotter stand, crew chiefs, mechanics as well. It seems like you guys never forget either, whether it's the good races, the bad races, the innocuous races in between. It seems like, at least from that story back in 96, you guys never forget these little intricate details. That's just kind of ingrained in racing's DNA. It is, and it's funny because Tim Fiedewa, who's a good friend of mine as well, obviously yeah. that's the spotter for Kevin Harvard now and had a very successful driving career, but uh, he tells me I got the ele- memory of an elephant and it's funny because <laughs> if you ask my wife, she'll tell you that I can't remember anything. I'm sure um, she says that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, obviously when it comes to the racing side and especially how, how things get started or, or how you first learn to do certain jobs, or I can remember my first time going into a tire store and having to measure out, you know, bias fly tires to try and get the correct stagger for that week. I mean, it's just things that just ingrain in your head that you never forget, but it's, uh, it's been a cool experience over the last 25, 26 years that I've been doing this. And it's, um, you, you, you remember the good things and you also remember, unfortunately remember the bad things as well. So you mentioned, you know, growing up in the Kannapolis area, obviously huge for racing, right? There's tracks all over the place, dirt tracks, asphalt tracks, the culture in Kannapolis is all about racing. So what drew you though, specifically to racing? Was it anything that your parents were involved in your friends? Did you kind of seek it out yourself? How did you catch the bug? Well, luckily enough for me, my cousin um, ran dirt cars around the area, and um, his mom, my aunt uh, Phyllis, was so. Backstory: my uh, my mom came down with urine tacoma, which is one of the most deadliest bone cancers that you can get. Back when I was a toddler, and so between my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, with her being sick and going through Duke University's uh, cancer program and stuff like that, I was. You know, like I said, I was two or three months old whenever she first got diagnosed. So I was I was back and forth with family and stuff, depending on what my dad had going on. So I stayed at my aunt's house a lot. And her son, my cousin, John Rary, who actually raced dirt cars around the area. So from the time I was able to put on a diaper and walk around the shop, I was handing tools. I was doing this. <laughs> I was doing that. I was cleaning parts. I was sitting in the race car acting like I was driving. And so um, I grew up around the sport and um, at a young age, just fell in love with, with 
the competition side of it. And um, I think I went to the first dirt track race when I was three months old, maybe right around that area. So um, just born and raised in the sport. Luckily had a family member that, that, that was able to, to, he worked as a mechanic on for his day job and then worked on the race cars at night till two or three in the morning, like a lot of grassroots racers do. And um, it's just something that I was born in, in and lucky enough to, to learn and, and grow up in. Did you ever race or did you ever want to race? I did want to race and I did try racing go-karts one time and realized that it wasn't for me. The driving <laughs> side just wasn't whatever it is that the drivers have that connects the brain to their, their butt, as you say, to mm -hmm. keep the gas pedal down. I just didn't yeah. have it. And I learned it at a young age and, um, I just wanted to learn everything that I could about the sport to try and stay in the sport, but it, the driving side never, never would have worked out. So then before you got into spotting in 96, when you did that for the first time, what did you do up until that point? Was it kind of just following around with your cousin and your friends and working on the cars and attending races, just kind of getting to know people in the garage? Did you do anything specifically or was it kind of just being around? Uh, kind of just being around, just volunteering, paying my own way to go to certain races and just, yep. hey, I need help this weekend. Are you available? Yes. Well, I can't pay you anything, but you know, I can provide you a sandwich and some cold drinks or something like that. Good for cool you know just whatever it is to get inside yeah. the garage area and get inside the gate and, and actually be able to learn but for the most part it was with my cousin traveling around like i said he ran the dirt series and then was as i got older um a lot of the dirt tracks around here become asphalt tracks so mm -hmm. we traveled to the asphalt tracks and he actually ran what was known then as the the big 10 series at concord which is a super late model series that traveled in and you'd have people come from Washington State. You know, Garrett Evans would come in from Washington State, and Mike Garvey would come in from Georgia. And you'd have 40 cars show up on a on a normal Saturday night race, and Freddie Query and Jack Sprague and Rich Bickle, and just Man. the name goes on and on and on. Yeah. And and um, so I started out doing tires. Is what what I first started doing. Like I said, talking about going and doing stagger in a tire store and learning how the bicycle tires work and how they grow and what kind of stagger you need to start with to get what you want when you want to end. And, um, just kept up race cars. I was never the, the engine guy. I couldn't really tell you. I understood how, how the engine worked, but I never could work on it. But the chassis side of things is what I, I hung my hat on and just learned everything that I could about if we change this shock or this spring, what it's going to do to the balance of the race car. And, yeah. and that's sort of where I, 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 hung my hat as I traveled up the, up the ladder and ended up going to work for Mike Herman Jr. Like I said, and, and kept up his cars and we actually won two track championships and ran really well in the Hooters Pro Cup series until funding went away. So that's, that's sort of how it, it just progressed up the ladder. I know we're kind of jumping around here, but it seems like from the outside, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but having that knowledge base and the background in racing. And I know a lot of spotters do have a background in racing, whether it be, on the marketing side, on the sponsorship side, driving, or just working on cars like you. But you've done that up until you started spotting for a handful of years at that point. And now, you know, 20 plus years later, this is all you've ever known. So it seems like from the outside, you having that knowledge base and background gives you an upper hand because when you're spotting, and I know that the job has progressed and, and it's different now than it was, and we'll get to that, but you're able to see, you know, what the car's doing and what a possible adjustment could be and how a driver enters a certain corner, things like that. You know different intricacies that a fan watching on TV or in the grandstands may not know about, and that kind of gives you an upper hand and gives you an, in, a unique relationship with the driver. Do you think that's fair to say? I think that's definitely fair to say. You know, when I first started doing it at this, the top three level, I guess you would say, you know, the yeah. truck, Xfinity, and, and Cup level, um, 
I was just trying to separate myself from the other guys and just try and give every advantage to my driver at the time that I could. So whether that was having a stopwatch in my hand and doing split times, as we call it, or picking an entry, corner entry position and getting a, a, a mark there to the center of the corner and seeing what that time is versus the fast guys or from center out. And then maybe you move around and you change your line through the corner and it slows down your corner speed, but it picks up your straightaway speed. Just yeah. certain little things like that, that you notice that try and separate yourself from what everybody else is doing. But now, like you said, that, you know, the game's changed a ton from when I first started, you know, we're still just a, a safety device is what we're there for to try and keep all 40 drivers safe and make sure they go home to their families and the car rolls onto the trailer at the end of the day. Um, but being a competitive advantage, as we say, um, giving the guys information, saying what other guys are doing in this. Now we have the SMT data, so it's easier for crew chiefs to pass that information as long as right. well. And we don't have to do near that much, but back before the SMT data and stuff, we were the data system. And even today, honestly, Chris Gavehart, our crew chief on the 11 cup car, he'll tell me, you know, Hey, even though I'm looking at all this data, you give me what you see, because I take what Denny says, I take what you say, I take what I'm looking at and I use it all to make my changes for the next pit stop or, or practice session or whatever we're going to have. So you keep feeding me that information because it's a tool that I do use. So it's, 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 when you watch as many laps as we do and you see as many things as we do, you, you learn little things and every track's a little different but based off the tire model and stuff like that, but you have an idea of what you should be looking at and where you should be line wise or whatever on the racetrack. And it helps having the experience. Yeah. All right. Real quick, before we move off into more of the spotting intricacies, did I read somewhere that growing up in Kannapolis, people hear the word Kannapolis and, th and they think of the Earnhardt name, right? Did I right. read that you were friends with Dale jr. Growing up and you kind of saw him at some racetracks? Yeah, we were friends when we were younger. Um, so my cousin, who ran the dirt cars. He had a sister as well, who was a couple years younger than he was. And she babysat me a lot whenever I was at their house, obviously. Okay. And, um, actually when, when Dale and, and, um, Dale Jr.'s mom first separated, Dale was renting a house that was two houses down from where my cousin lived. Okay. So when Dale was a, a, a toddler, we were running around together in diapers and hanging out and, you know, just she babysat Dale Jr. as well. So cool. we become friends. And then obviously as, as we grew older and he moved in with Dale full time and then got sent off to the military school, we lost touch. Um, and, you know, we don't really talk a whole lot now. I see him at the racetrack in the, in the booth before races and stuff and we'll chit chat, but it's not like it was when we were growing up, you know, when we were, and I want to say he's two weeks older than I am. Um, when it wow. comes down to the actual, he was born the first of October and I was born the end of October, but mm -hmm. so our moms were friends until, until my mom got sick, obviously and stuff. But, um, yeah, we were, we were friends growing up and then obviously just lost touch over the years. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's talk some more spotting stuff. Cause I'm really intrigued by the job itself. And like we mentioned, it has evolved, you know, at the start of it, it you, you know, you guys were placed up there to just call what you see and you still do that, but you have a ton more on your plate. And I read somewhere that, you know, you are an expert in multitasking. That is what you do best because you're relaying information. You're seeing how pit strategy plays out. You're reminding them of their lights as you come onto pit road. And by the way, you're trying to make the car come home in one piece and keep the driver safe. So right. take us through what you do once the green flag flies, or at least before the green flag flies, because I know there's stuff that goes on till the checkered flag flies. What does being a spotter entail besides just talking on the radio? it's a lot more than just talking on the radio and your average fan probably has no idea what all we have going on throughout the normal race procedures. 
<clears throat> but so typically for me on a race day, um, I'll get to the roof about an hour and 45 minutes to two hours before the race starts. Um, just so I can get up there because we share a lot of places. We share the elevators with fans. So you got fans coming to the suite levels and stuff and it's hard to get, you know, you, you want to be respectful and wait in line, but there's also a point where I've got to get to the roof to do my job. So you have to start cutting the line. So I try and avoid that process from the start, but I'll get up there and, and, most of us have these spots where we like to stand at certain certain racetracks just based off of years past and sight lines and angles and stuff like that. So I'll get up there, get my place marked off. I have my pit road sheet that I have the crew chief or the engineers print off for me, which has the entire pit road with timing lines and, and where guys are pitting. So I can give that information to Denny when we start the pit. And um, I'll get all that stuff set up. I'll go through my marks of where my 10 away mark is on pit road, have a sight line, write it down what my pit road speed should be, my light should be based off what the RPM and the gear ratio we're running that weekend is. And then I'll get all that stuff set up. I'll get my radios out. I'll test them, make sure that I have no issues, make sure that I'm just coming in clear and, and concise and just make sure that everything's ready to go. And then I'll grab, you know, a water or a sandwich or something and go sit in the shade and just put my earbuds in and just what I call just chill, just getting my mindset to get ready for four hours of, craziness or chaos so um when the race starts um i wear four radios and that's the maximum that nascar allows there's in the past i would have five radios on um and number one radio is my obviously my main talk radio to the car channel one radio that you guys can hear on the nascar.com and, and the, the track pass and stuff mm -hmm. or scanner um so I'm, i have that radio which is my primary talk radio to the car on channel one in that same airport in my headset, I'll listen to myself on that radio to make sure that it's coming in. I have no static. I have no issues. There's no in and out. The button's working. So I listen to myself in that same uh, airport. On the secondary headport over here, I'll have what we call channel two, which is what I talk to strictly the crew chief on the box yep. for um, that the driver cannot hear. Now, NASCAR, I think they do pick that up as well um, oh, yeah. over the scanner. And if you have, if you're at the racetrack and you have a scanner, you have to go back and forth. But if you just listen to the track pass, you can pick up both. Mm -hmm. And then I also have NASCAR and a, a fourth radio that I'm scanning NASCAR, the tower that they're relaying all their information because all their information that's relayed nowadays comes through the spotter. Um, used to go through the crew chief, but now it comes through the spotter. They just yep. tell us what they want us to do. And if we're out of a line or we need to do something different, then that's where the information comes from. So you have all these voices in your head at, at one yeah. time you're trying to keep up with. That's where the multitasking comes in. Um, but also it's, uh, it's, you're trying to keep up with radio battery, you know, in my bag is my battery staying strong. So used to when the caution would come out we could take a break we could get a drink of water we could go use the bathroom right quick but now like you said we are so valuable with pit row stuff that we are working non-stop mm -hmm. um so um it's it's a lot going on other than just being the safety device that we are up there for um but it's it's start to finish now there's very little breaks that we get to take and and a place like bristol this past weekend where it's it's 1490 15 second lap times and, and you're flying around that racetrack and you have different speed discrepancies and you catching lap guys and you're trying to give your information to the driver about where this guy has typically been running but yet he might change his lane or something so it's uh yeah it's busy it's busy for sure 
What did you use the fifth radio for? Because you got the four. You, yourself, Channel 1, Channel 2, and NASCAR. What more could you possibly need or want? So for me, and I know Eddie DeHunt, who spots with Chase Elliott, was one of the ones that done this as well. And But I would always listen to the MRM broadcast. Okay. Um, just because now it was in a it was in a port that I had already when racing electronics when they would build my headset it would be custom built for me. Mm. Um, I've been around racing my whole life like we've talked about some sort of hard of hearing. Now, my yeah. wife might tell you that it's just selective hearing, but it's just I'm, I'm hard of hearing. <laughs> so I would have a different port for that one, and I would have the volume where it's turned down. But I'm listening to the MRN corner workers just because typically. If something happens in a corner, they're going to see it before anybody does, whether it's right. an accident or a piece of debris that's laying there that maybe nobody else sees. Mm -hmm. so I would listen to that and just have that as a as basically like a a secondary tool to use just in yeah. case something happened. On the road courses, I still try and do that some. Um, I'll have my actually my scan like my my secondary channel. I'll have it scanning the MRN. Um, that way it's constantly on there. But if I need to talk to Gabe Harder, he needs to talk to me, that, that channel's yeah. open. But I would just use it for the MRM broadcast just just as another tool to, to pick up on anything that they may see that I may be missing and and could, could help myself as well. So when I'm at the track, I always like to listen to the MRM broadcast as well, but that's because of what they talk about in commercial breaks. Yes. And I'm sure that uh -huh. that probably has distracted you a time or two in the past. You're just like, Wait, what, what are they talking about? Where are they going to eat? Okay, let me focus on my job here. Yes. Yeah, their their hot mic conversation when the, the broadcast is actually at, at commercial. So is good. Comical. It, it's, 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 it's your typical conversation that two buddies or three buddies or four buddies yeah. are having just standing around whenever they're, you know, you're just shooting the bull. And, and, um, and then all of a sudden when they come back and they go hot, they're right back in their their professionals professional voices and just yep. you, you never know what's going on unless you had the ability to sit there and listen to it. it it's it's so cool yeah it's really funny okay so that's a lot of different things that you do at one specific time holding a one role as a spotter but i was and you say you listen to podcasts so you may have heard this conversation too dale jr on the download this past week i think last week was basically saying you know spotters used to be just throw a random guy up there and say clear or not clear and that job has completely evolved into something way bigger, way better, way more important and integral into a team's success back then to what it is now. And right. you've been there kind of from the start of things. So take us through that evolution. How has the job of being a spotter evolved over the last 10, 15, 20 years? It's evolved a lot. Um, and just with the role, like you said, you know, years ago, I think Brett Griffin, who who obviously does a podcast as well. He's been doing it a few years longer than I have, but he, he said, you know, he sort of got thrown into it just by being a guy that didn't have a role behind the wall on pit stops or during yeah. pit stops. So, Hey, new guy, take off up there. We just need a, a warm body just to, to check in with NASCAR <laughs> just to be there. Whether you yeah. say anything or not is on you, but we need somebody up there. So um, it's, it's evolved. Now, number one, our, our main goal is still safety. Um, and that's our, number one priority every weekend is to try and make sure that not only our driver, but the other 39 drivers go home safe to their family every weekend. Um, but it's, it's evolved to the point now where we're feeding information about what we're seeing other guys doing, where we're feeding the crew chief information about what we're seeing our car, you know, maybe Denny shallows his entry up into the corner and we just made an adjustment to try and free him up because he was tight across the center. Well, now maybe we're too free in. Well, Denny doesn't relay that information. 
right off the get-go that I'm free in now, but I can see our entry has changed. So mm -hmm. I'm relaying that information to Gabe Hart saying, hey, make sure you ask him about his entry because all of a sudden he's shallowed it up and, and it's it's obviously affecting our lap time. But just little things like that, um, just – it's funny because I say we wear a lot of hats. I'm an information giver at all times to the crew chief, to the driver. I'm a safety device, you know, trying to keep us out of accidents or keep us away from guys that are that are acting a little crazy at certain times on the racetrack. Yep. Um, we are a punching bag when the driver wants to vent. We're the first Bingo. one to get the brunt. <laughs> I mean, when when they're in that race car and they're in that cocoon and they're in their little environment, all they have is that push the top button to push to vent. A lot of them vent off the radio, and you never even know it, but. Some of them like to push that button and, and vent. So we're the yeah. we're the punching bag whenever they want to just completely go off the rails, which happens from time to time. And I get it because um, they feel like they're out there in their own little cocoon and they're by themselves. But at the end of the day, there's not only myself and the crew chief, but there's 15 other guys on the 11 team that are all in this together. And yeah. we're all trying to pull the rope in the same direction. You're a makeshift uh, psychiatrist. You didn't even we're know. We're a psychiatrist that. at times. I mean, you know, Tony Hirschman, who's one of my teammates at Spots for Kyle, he has a oh psychology God. degree from Penn State. Does he so actually? He, did, he really does, yes. Well, that's good for Kyle. <laughs> and if anybody has able to work with Kyle over the years, it's been Tony, obviously. That's so interesting. It's, uh, it, I told him all the time, it's, that's, you probably have the, the only person in the industry that has a degree that you're using every week, every Correct. race. So uh, kudos to you for that. But, yes, he yeah. has a psychology degree. So we're psychologists to a certain degree, and just we wear so many different hats throughout the race and it changes from lap to lap and, and week to week that you never know which one you're going to wear more that particular weekend. So you talked about how drivers could get mad at you for no reason. And you understand that you bear the brunt of that, um, on DBC, you know, Brett, Freddie and TJ, they've talked at length about when they get mad at NASCAR and when NASCAR gets mad at them, I'm sure over the years, you have to have some stories of when NASCAR got mad at you for either a just or an unjust reason or vice versa. When, when you thought that you were done wrong and you made your case and it either worked or it didn't work. So give me your best story interacting with the NASCAR official or multiple officials atop the spotter stand trying to plead your case or vice versa. Yeah. Oh, I guess the best story would be hard to too many to count. <laughs> that it, it's, it's a weekly occurrence, unfortunately. And it's whether it's something as simple as not agreeing with the lineup back before we had to choose cone rule. Um, you know, when a caution comes out, they freeze the field, they tell you where you're supposed to go. And a lot of times we don't understand, or we don't know where the actual time and loops are. So you could have traveled a hundred feet when the caution came out, but the time and loop may be a hundred feet behind you. And you may mm -hmm. have been behind two different cars at that point in time. Know, yeah. So you don't know that, but in the moment, all you know, is when the caution come out, I was ahead of these two guys. So, you know, yeah. that becomes a disagreement. And most of the time, NASCAR can go back and show you the video and tell you that you're no matter how right you think you are, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's been situations like that, but luckily knock on wood throughout the, throughout the course of my career, I haven't been called to the NASCAR hauler at all. I haven't all right. been, I haven't been, um, has sat down and talked to, you know, I'll ask questions and every year we have a, we have four meetings every year that we sit down as a group of spotters with NASCAR. And it used to be with David Hoots when David was the race director. Mm -hmm. um, but now that open line of communication has went to where, whether it's uh, Jusan Hamilton who calls the races a lot of times or um, whoever it may be that, you know, Hey, here's my number. If you have any issues after the race or whatever, you know, shoot me a text or give me a call, 
immediately so it's fresh on our mind and we can talk about it and we can give you our yeah. our side of things that's good um, which has been good um but we used to sit down at the four plate races the two talladegas and the two daytonas every year and have a spotter meeting and just go over anything that we had had issues with you know late weeks leading into those races or whatever and mm -hmm. whether it was parking issues or elevator issues or actually on track issues that kind of stuff we would talk about it all and try and try and set up a plan for the following you know races to come but um it's been good luckily like i said knock on wood i haven't been i haven't yeah. been sat down and actually just berated by nascar or anything so that means i've i guess i've done my job to the best of my abilities that way but anytime you have 40 different guys on 40 different agendas and NASCAR's trying to call it by the books, you would say you're going to have a disagreement of what you feel like's right and wrong in certain times. And yeah. a lot of times you'll come out on the good end of it. A lot of times you'll come out on the bad end of it, but you got to understand that it, it it's just them doing their job. And while we're focused on our singular car, they're focused on the whole entire race as a whole. So it's, it's, they're looking at things differently than we are. Uh, when you brought up the elevator issue, I just immediately remembered when Brett, TJ, and Freddie were talking about Kentucky. I think it was Kentucky and that awful elevator. And you mentioned like you ride up with the fans. I remember like a couple of years ago, I was riding up with Tim Fito and I'm just like, hey, you going to drop a sandwich off the roof today? Like joking with yes. him, you know what I mean? Like, so, so that's actual, you know, real life problems that you guys deal with. It's like, okay, you work for a race team. You know, you're winning races every week. You're a three-time Daytona 500 champion, which we'll get into. But like, you're dealing with fans. You, you're trying not to be late. You're trying to make sure your batteries don't die. You're, tr you're doing all these really like funny things when you look at it from a 30,000 foot view that normal people are dealing with. And two seconds later, you're going to be getting on the radio. People are going to be listening to you. You're going to be guiding Denny through the mess and hopefully ending up in victory lane. So again, spotters, they're just like us. You deal with elevator issues. You deal with yeah. crazy stuff that you see off the side. You deal with drivers venting to you. I think you may need to get a psychology degree or at least take some lessons from Tony because he's got it figured out. Yes. Luckily, being teammates with Tony, I get to go to dinner with him quite often and we get uh -huh. to to sit down and, and whether it's him and myself and Chris Osborne, who was teammates with us for years with Matt mm -hmm. Kendrick, or now we got Drew Herring and, and Stevie Reeves as teammates. So we'll all go to sit down. And, and a lot of us, you know, we're just a big fraternity of guys that are friends. We spend just as much time on the roof with the other spotters as we do our families at home. And we used to until COVID hit and we're doing one day shows and stuff like that now, but, um, we'd sit down and go to dinner, just, you know, let's let air our grievances out, you know, just talk about what, how our race was, whether it was truck race, Xfinity race, Arca race, what happened to our guy, what we dealt with and just air them out. But it's funny because, you know, you see all these different things when you're on the roof. I mean, a few years ago, talking about Kentucky, Oh my God. They had one race, they had one race a year and the elevator has to work that one weekend when they they've known it's coming and we get there and it's, it's not working. And we, there's a few guys that have had, uh, which Carl Miller is not spotting anymore, but back then Carl was, was an older guy that had, had some heart issues and actually had some, some surgeries and trying to have him climb what would be roughly six flights of stairs carrying a 30, a 30 pound book bag full of radios is not good. Um, so those kind of issues, I mean, Kentucky, we had to fire her out behind the spotter stand that one year, the, a grill in the back of a pickup truck and you Insane. see the smoke blowing out. I mean, and I'm parked two down from that truck. So I'm worried about my rental. Really? Car. Oh yes. Unfortunately oh, it was. So, you know, here I am worried about the rental car catching on fire and me not having to ride <laughs> to the airport after the race. So just, oh. we are just normal people that, and we interact with the fans probably as much as anybody does because we do share the same walkways. We share the, share the same stairs. We share the yeah. same elevators. 
we share the same common bathroom areas and stuff. So, you know, we get questions all the time and we interact and at some point, you know, Hey, I got to go do my job. It's been nice talking to you. Thanks for being here and have fun, but I'll see you later. So you, you're correct. We are, we are probably one of the faces that the fans see more than, more than a lot of people. Do fans interact with you during the race at all? Because I've heard stories of when, when Junior was still racing, fans would yell at TJ and either be like, you suck or you're doing great. Do fans ever yell at you and interact with you? There's certain places like Talladega, they are right at our feet. Where we yeah. now, Since they um, added on the new press box area there and they put us actually on the roof of that. But before we were right at the where the spotter stand was, we, were, we shared the same level as the handicap level. And we shared the same bathroom as the handicap level. Cool. But the general fan, the highest row in that station was could reach up. If they were standing up, they could turn around and reach up and touch our feet where we were standing. Wow. So, you know, most of them are very respectful and, mm-hmm. and, and stuff while we're actually working and the track's green. But Unless uh, so they've had too much to drink, which at Talladega is very possible. Very possible. Um, <laughs> even before the race ever starts, that's possible. But, Absolutely. Um, you know, most of them, they'll turn around and they'll, you know, try and get your attention and give you a thumbs up if they're listening and telling you you do a good job or, you know, they'll conversate with us and we, we will conversate back with them and communicate with them and stuff to a certain point. But yeah, it, it's, uh, there's certain tracks that they are much more, I guess they're right where we are and the sight lines and the general area is, we're, we're much closer to them than a lot of places. So it, it yeah. does happen for sure. Uh, you mentioned that fire at Kentucky. I know that uh, one of the articles I read about you, you mentioned that as one of the craziest things you've seen. Uh, remember the pothole at Daytona, the jet dryer at Daytona? There's some other crazy stuff that happens at the racetrack. What are some other of those moments where you're saying, like, is this really happening? Is this happening at a racetrack during a race right now? Because there's been some wild moments over the years. There have, and a lot of them have to do with fires, unfortunately. It, you know, at Fontana a few years ago, I don't remember who it was. It had hit the fence and, and some brake parts had gotten thrown over the wall at Fontana. Yeah, turn two, and all of a sudden you see this, this smoke start coming out from behind the wall over yeah. by the, by the, you know, by the, we're actually where the MRN guys were on the billboards over there. And, oh yeah. Um, it starts getting heavier and heavier smoke. And all of a sudden there's a fire. You can see flames starting to come up. So, uh, stuff like that. Um, there's been fans in the stands that, like you said, have a little too much to drink and are having a little good time. And and females will be in bikini tops, and all of a sudden the tops come off, and they're flashing the fans around them. They're flashing the TV camera. Focus on your job, Chris. Yeah. Yes. You know, a lot of times that people say, you know, that's the best spotting job you're on all day when you're pointing that out to your other buddy <laughs> on the spotter stand. So um those are some funny funny things um it's and then there's also the times where we go to places um fontana being one of them um vegas this weekend could be a possible situation where you have some of the some of the whether it's tv entertainment or or music celebrities show up and they want to come and just get a bird's eye view of the best view in the house because we obviously do have the best view in the house every week and for people that have never been on the spotter stand at certain racetracks, when they come up there, it's just like they're they're looking out at at destiny across the, the waters. You know what I mean? It's like you're at a yeah you're at a resort and you're standing there looking at the most beautiful beach or water you've ever seen. But it's just the racetrack that we see every week or from mm-hmm. week to week. But the view is so amazing. So you know, getting to interact with some of the musicians or the actresses or actors that come out and it's um it's definitely a cool experience. 
some of the previous teams and the drivers that you spotted for stand out, but none more than Red Bull Racing. And you did that with Brian Vickers back in the day. Uh, the interesting thing to me, and I heard you say this somewhere, was that it was essentially just a marketing team that decided to have race cars. And that kind of goes against everything that racers stand for, which is competitiveness, running fast, winning races. And that's not to say they didn't because they did win races and Brian won races. But that whole experience working with Red Bull Racing had to be different, I assume, than anything you had had before that and after that. Because as we know, Red Bull does things differently. They did things differently in NASCAR and you were a part of that front and center. So tell us what that was like. It was definitely different. It was an experience, and to this day, I'll tell people it was probably, other than Joe Gibbs Racing, um, which I've been with Denny since 2012 now, but it was by far the best working environment I'd ever been in. Really? Um, and that goes back to outsider racing. I worked in car dealerships and managed uh, Dodge Chrysler Jeep parts department for years and stuff, but just overall as a whole, um, the entire company was unreal to work for. Um, they did everything that they said they would do. They didn't try and screw you on anything. They did everything that they was in the contract to do. Even when they shut down, you know, they came unto us and told us, you know, hey, if you'll stay to the end of the year, we'll pay you one month's salary for every six months you've been with the company. Just trying wow. to keep you there and, trip, you know, just make sure that they had enough manpower to finish the year out when they knew yeah. that they were shut down to the end of the year. So, but my first time over here, back when I first started, which was, the end of 06 going into 07, I guess it was, they or end of 07 going into 08, they, both cars were still blue. Both cars had the same color numbers. Both cars <laughs> had the same color roof numbers. There was really no difference in being able to distinguish the two cars other than the numbers themselves. Yeah. So Tim Fidewa was actually spotting for the 84 at the time, which was AJ. And I came in mid year that year, David Green was spotting for Brian and, he was going to drive the red horse truck when the fight, uh, AJ fight kid or Aaron fight kid had gotten caught with the heroin or whatever the situation was there. Haven't heard so, that name in forever. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's when, yeah. So, um, they were trying out different spotters for Brian throughout the end of that year. And I just happened to be one of the ones that was local, lucky enough to get a shot. So mm-hmm. but going into Daytona, my first full-time year there, I'm like, Hey, is there anything that we can do for, distinguishing these two cars which because when you're on the back stretch at daytona especially at night which the duels were at night back then mm-hmm. and the shadows on the racetrack with the lights it's hard to distinguish cars and when you scan yeah. ahead to look ahead and when you come back trying to find your car is the key that's the key goal and um and they told me right quick well unfortunately we've already submitted our diecast for the year what they're going to look like. So our diecast have to look like our race cars because we are a marketing team that just happened to run race cars. Mm-hmm. We, we do this to, to promote our brand and, and they're huge on their branding and um, which obviously they've done a really good job with that with this way it's taken off, but we, we can't change anything. And I'm like, I just need a little help here. You know, you may want to submit a different diecast that is torn up because unfortunately our race car, when we get down to Daytona, could end up looking just like yeah you know, a torn up race car but um overall as a company i mean they did everything right when it comes to insurance when it comes to benefits when it comes to salary when it comes to anything that they did but one of the first things you had to do when you got hired over there was go through what they call red bull college and you had to go through and basically sit through a three and a half to four hour a sit down virtual lo- lesson and learn 
how the how the company started, uh, the two gentlemen that started, how it started, why it started, how it wow. became what it is now, how they from start to finish, how they make the product, how they bottle the product, how they ship the product, how they just you had to learn the entire history of this, the company. Yeah. So you you knew you were representing something that was big, way bigger than just the race team. You were smart, yeah. And and it and it, I think if you ask anybody that, that was fortunate enough to work there over the the three or four years that they were around, they would tell you the same thing. As a company as a whole, they just they did everything right to take care of their employees. That's really interesting. Did not know that. Okay, so you work with Brian Vickers there. Um, you also worked in the past with Cole Witt, Brandon Jones last year, I think, Eric Jones, Timothy Peters, the late, great Jason Leffler. I know I'm leaving out a ton of drivers too. So tell us who else you have worked with in the past. I know the list is probably too long and you're going to forget some people, but that right. only scratches the surface. Yes. Yeah, so on the truck side, I've been fortunate enough to work with KBM a lot over the years. I worked with Red Horse a lot over the years until they shut down when Mr. Deloach decided to just get out of the sport. Um, and I worked with Thor sport the last few years. So I've worked with Jason Leffler. I've worked with Cole Witt when we had our team Red Bull team that was actually through Stacy Compton racing. Mm -hmm. Um, I've worked with, uh, Grant Anfinger the last several years at Thor sport, um, had a great time doing that. And then sort of got called back to the Toyota family. If you say, if you would say for this year, working with Chandler Smith and the KBM 18 truck, um, I've been fortunate enough in Xfinity to work with Bernie Lamar when he was at Braun Racing. Wow. Back in the day. These names, man. Oh, my God. Um, I started with Braun back in the day when I first got it back into doing this stuff full time, I guess you would say, and worked with Trent Owens and those guys over there, TJ Pusher and the guys. Now a lot of them are Spire and on Spire, but um, I got to work with Vickers. I got to work with a Blaney. I mean, uh, you name it. Uh, so Mike Bliss. Names just the name goes on and on. And a lot of them are just one-off deals that I did. Mm -hmm. um, and this year, I'm fortunate enough to work with Sam Hunt Racing, who's another Toyota affiliate. And we've had Santino Ferrucci, who has been just so cool to get to know and learn and, and see his personality. You hear all the horror stories that come from the F1 stuff and how he's a bad teammate and a bad dude. And But he's just passionate about what he does and just still a, a young kid trying to make it in the sport. So yeah. that fire and desire is there. And they, they view teammates in F1 and IndyCar a little bit differently from how we do in, in NASCAR. So that's your biggest competitor in, in the open wheel style of racing. Um, Cause that's how you're judged. Everybody has different equipment and stuff like that. So, right. but I've worked with uh, Brandon Godovic this year. I've had John Hunter Nemechek in the car. Um, it's Brandon Jones, Eric Jones, his first full-time year at Gibbs when, when Chris Gayhart was actually crew chief and then we missed the championship at Homestead when Cole Witt, of all people, stays out on 50 laps. It all tires. comes full circle, Chris. It, it, it does. And Cole, Cole and I are still great friends to this day and still communicate. Yeah. I, I love Cole. I love his family. And uh, I miss seeing him. And I know he's out in California now and he's happy and has a family now. So that's, but it all does come full circle. So, and then on the cup side of things, I, I started out at MB2 again. Dave Grant, uh, Doug Randolph actually is the one that reached out and wanted me to come back to the sport full time. And I worked with Regan Smith in the Xfinity car at the MB2 again days. Um, and then I actually got moved up and spotted for Sterling Marlin for a handful of races in the waste management 14 car. So that's how it wow. sort of my first ever cup race was other than trying to get Regan Smith into the Daytona 500 in 2007 was with with sterling marlin who was on the backside of his career but still yeah. just a really great guy to be around and learned a lot with slugger labby as my crew chief and 
and him him driving the race car. So it's it's been a lot. I mean, I'm sure a lot of guys I'm forgetting. Um, spotted for Casey Kane and Brian both when we were doing the tandem racing back in the day. You know, Cole's uh, Casey's cousin Cole was spotting for him at the time. He's like, hey, you're way better at this super speedway play stuff than I am. You just you spot them both. So they would both be on my radio, and I'm trying to talk to the lead at the same time. At the same time. And you're trying to give d- different information. Like the lead guy needs to know what's coming from behind because yeah. he can see. And he's just trying to navigate going forward. But you're trying to tell the behind guy what you're putting, what right. he's putting the lead guy into. But he oh can see God. what's coming out back. So Is that legal? It it was, yes. Because that it, was when you could talk, the drivers could talk to each other too, right? Talk. So yeah. as you're trying to relay this information, and I'm sure you've listened to a lot of super speedway racing and the lingo is different and it's yeah, yeah. Amped, it's amped up. You know, my wife tells me I sound like a um oh, what's the term? Um people that do the auction, auctioneer. Yeah. You yeah. sound like an auctioneer at these plate races because you're just constantly clear about you on your bumper coming up high, down low, down yeah. low, coming to the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and and you do that well. Um Thank you. but <laughs> When you're trying to trying to give two different guys two different sets of information to help them make the decision and stay off the radio at certain times so they can talk amongst themselves. That's insane. It was it was a disaster. I mean, it was cool, but I'm glad we don't do it anymore because it was it took everything out of our safety device. It took it away because you felt like yeah. that you were going to talk over somebody or something was going to be happening and you couldn't get the information out if something did a wreck did happen. You couldn't be able to get it out. So it's. It was fun while it lasted, but I'm glad we don't do that on a on a weekly basis now. That literally blows my mind. What was there anybody else on top of the spotter span that stand that did the same thing as you, or were you a lone wolf and spotting multiple truck cars? Oh no, we were all at that point in time. So whoever you ended up being able to get hooked up with, and most time it would be your teammates. So yeah. back when we did it, it was 2011, 2010, 2011. That was Brian and Casey at Red Bull uh-huh. at the time. So they would get hooked up and every restart if you got separated and you might be five rows different on restart you know you're trying to find that one guy that you're trying to get with so they would you try and make that happen as soon as they got connected and cole would get off the he wouldn't get off the radio per se he would stand there beside me and he would be pointing at different things to try and help me see the full scope of it yeah i'm the one that's spotting the race cars and as soon as they would get detached or whatever and the caution would come out then cole would go back to spotting pit road for casey and i would go back to spinning pit oh road God. for brian but it was it was a lot going on yeah <laughs> and it, even back then my head was spinning just trying to keep up Dude. everything that's because you had crew chiefs from two different race teams you had our crew chief on the 83 and then casey's crew chief on the the four car at the time that was trying to relay information to the drivers you, you know, may have it, had six voices in your ear two crew chiefs two drivers mrn and nascar and yourself seven and myself and and other guys if if it, it was it was a different time and it was something that i enjoyed like i said for that one yeah. or two we did it but i mean right now in my garage i've got a huge picture of the red boy days and it's the 83 at talladega and the 11 car full circle where again is the one that's tandem with us and denny and brian are the two that basically created it because there was a time before we started doing it more and more often that somehow the 11 got attached to the 83's bumper and he shoots us way out like 50 car lengths ahead of the pack but the the radiators and and all that wasn't that you know that the yeah the, the water pop off and all that wasn't set to where you could be attached for very long but we've seen how many how much 
RPM and how much miles per hour we gained just by that little, little short section. Yeah. So then of course the driver's like, well, shit, I mean, we can, we can make this happen if we can adjust our car some yeah. to where we get more air intake and stuff. So, but there's a picture in my garage. I got it blown up like a 30 by 30 of the 11 pushing the 83 at Talladega. And I want to say it's like 2009, maybe 2000. Man. like that. And Three years later. Three years later. Yes. That is, that's insane. I did not know that. I feel like I listened to it because I, I was going to races that at that point at 2011 when they had that three wide two by two finish or four wide. I was yeah, at that race wide. and I was scanning everybody. So I must have listened to it, but I guess I was too young to kind of comprehend the fact that that was happening. That is insane. Wow. Yeah, that was that was one spotter spot in two cars and, and the, the, whoever the spotter was that wasn't doing the actual work would typically stand in there just trying to point out different things to the guy that was spotting trying. Because, you know, you, the, the, you had the tandem and they'd have to swap because yeah. somebody was too hot. Yeah. And when you would pull out and swap, then that would back you up. There'd be runs coming on both sides of you, three and four wide, and then you'd get that run built back up again, and then they're swapping. So you're trying to navigate the yeah. whole racetrack. So it was so much going on. Chaos, organized chaos. <laughs> Did you like tandem stuff? And I mean, we'll get into the super speedway stuff because you're clearly one of the best at it. But you guys had success in the tandem era. You guys have had success in the current era. Do you like the tandem stuff? Do you like it better now? Where do you stand on that? I like it way better now. It's, um, it's a lot less chaotic, I guess you would say, even though it is more chaotic than a normal week for us. Yeah. But um, You don't have to spot stuff, two cars at the same time. Yeah, trying to spot two cars. And like <laughs> I said, the biggest thing for me was just trying to give two different – the information that the front car needed was way different from the information that the back yeah. car needed and trying to – Trying to time it at the right time and give it at the right time. And then, like I said, get off the radio and let them two communicate amongst themselves – because I can't tell you whether you're pushing me at the right angle or you're on my bumper at the right time. And yeah. I'm just out here on a Sunday cruise, or if I'm in the car fighting the wheel, cause you've got me so cockeyed, you know what I mean? Just, so that's only the information two drivers could communicate and relay that information back and forth. So you're trying to, you're trying to time all your information at the right time, but yet yeah. give those two guys that the amount of if the radio openness to be able to communicate amongst themselves. And it's, it was, it was trial by fire. Yep. And luckily we didn't there again, not gonna we didn't tear nothing up at the time or have a major disaster, but um it's it, I'm glad we do it the way we do it now. So how does your job differ from driver to driver? Because on a given weekend you could be spotting three different drivers, four different drivers sometimes, right? Some like more information, some like less information, some people like to be talked to twenty four seven, some people like to be totally silent on the radio. And you have to tailor your job to the driver's specifications. So how does your job as a spotter differ from Denny to other people that you spot, whether it be Godovic or Ferrucci or John Hunter, because it's different driver to driver, what they prefer. It is. And that's one of the things that years ago, whenever I was first coming up and trying to distinguish myself and separate myself was, and I would sit down with the drivers leading into the weekend and just say, Hey, you know, what do you like? What are you used to? Yeah. Um, how much coaching do you want? How much coaching do you need? Um, how much talking do you like? Do you, a lot of guys don't even like to be talked to in the corners. Um, and it's just because it's just a distraction of what they're trying to do. They're trying to fill the race car and, and carry as much momentum and speed through the corners as they can. And when you key up and talk to them, it's like it startles them or, or what have you. So yeah. there's certain guys that don't even want to be taught like Paul Menard, even though I never worked with Paul, Paul, 
he didn't like to be talked to in the corners. Well, that's hard to do when you're telling him inside, outside, in the corners. So um, that's a tough situation for a spotter to be in. But, you know, like when I first come over here to Denny in 2012, like Vickers loved all the information you give him. He said, yeah. you, you tell me everything that you see going on, something that may help me, what I will, what I can use, I will, I will filter in and use it. What I don't, I'll tune out and filter out. But you can't give me too much information. You give me everything that you think that you would want if you were sitting inside this race car to help you make decisions, and I'll use what I, what I want, and I'll tune out what I don't, which was great. As a spotter trying to learn, you have an open reign to just basically just commentate the race and, yeah. and feed him as much information as you possibly could. And Brian and I would actually sit down. I, I give him all the credit for a lot of my super speedway or plate racing success over the years because we would sit down in the bus even after practice sessions and he would, he would DVR all the, all the practices in the races and we would sit down and he would pause it and he would say, all right, I'm in this situation right now. You see what I see. You see what, what you're seeing from the roof. Tell me what you would be saying in this situation. So I'll understand what you mean when you say certain things, whether it's three wide or four wide or one lane's tighter than the other, just whatever it was. And then we would sit down and he would pause it at different times. And we would, he would say, all right, tell me what you'd see. And we built a rapport just by doing that of, yeah. of, of basically building a notebook to where he knew if I said certain things, he had had it paused on his TV an hour before the day before he knew what I was saying. And, um, so when I come over here to, to Denny in 2012, we were still doing Daytona testing at the time. And we did all single car runs for the first part of the day. And then we started drafting and we had a lunch break and I'll never forget it. Um, I come in, I come off the roof, come into this, into the trailer and Denny's just sitting there and he's just got this blank, we call it the Denny stare, <laughs> just blank stare that he's staring off into space. And it's just like, a, no emotion on his face. Just, he's not even there. He's just off somewhere thinking. Yep. It was Darian Grubbs first, first time crew chiefing for that year as well. So he had Darian in his ear differently from Mike Ford. He had had all those years. And then of course myself versus Curtis Markham, who had had all those years uh -huh. and we're sitting there and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna head back up. Is there anything that you want to discuss? You know, anything that you need more of less of information wise, what you're used to, you know, help me help, help me help you. And he looked right at me and he said, Chris, he said, I've never had that much information flowing through my ears <laughs> at, at any race, much less at Daytona or Talladega. He said, right now you're giving me so much information that I cannot process it fast enough to use it. He said, but when I can, we are going to be badass on these play races. He said, it's just, once I get to where I can understand what you're telling me, I can process it fast enough and I can use it to make, help myself make those decisions. We're going to be hard to handle. He said, you do you and let me catch up. And it's he caught up. <laughs> he, he, he caught up. And yeah. now I just feel like that we've been doing it so long. I feel like we're on the same page. A lot of times Denny's so yes, there's a lot of luck involved in, in super speedway racing, of course. but there's also, and I think gay parts mentioned over the years, there's that risk first reward that a lot of guys haven't seemed to figure out the, the balance of the two. Mm -hmm. and Denny, there's situations now where, whether it's based off of past experience with the car and we keep changing the package. So it changes from race to race, but you know, I'll go sit down with our aero group at Gibbs. And I don't know if a lot of guys do this or not. I may be giving my secrets out, but I'll sit down and say, Hey, 
is there a certain situation based off the air balance of these cars that we don't want to be in, even if I can get him in it? And it may be three wide in the middle. You may, might not want to be in a certain situation or whatever. So even if there's a clear hole to that line, I won't even clear him to it because I know we don't want to be there. Right. Or I know that based off our conversations that Benny and I have had, he don't want to be there. You know, and it's hard some, to get out if you're in it. It's hard to get out of. And once you get in a situation, you know, he'll bail out. You'll see him bail out at times and just go to the very back because he feels the energy ramping up and he sees the guys making moves. And he, But he also has the trust in me that if I see that, if we're middle of three, five rows back, and I see the front row or, you know, guys up there getting really aggressive that, if I tell him, Hey, get out of there, he's not going to question it. He's just going to figure out a way to get out he and, trusts you. and start over. So, but it's been a good, it's been a good, that side of it's been good. I mean, the whole, the whole 10 years I've been with him has been great. Um, mm -hmm. When I first come over here and he called me, want me to come over here. I told Jeff Dickerson at the time, who I'm good friends with, I told Jeff, I'm like, no, I'm just a show up, do my job kind of guy, go home. I'm not looking for, the limelight or I'm not hanging out on the lake or hanging out at the, at the bars every weekend. I live an hour and a half, an hour and 10 minutes away from Lake Norman. And, and I show up and do my job and go home. I don't know that I can work with Benny because from the outside looking in, you see the entourage and the jet and, you know, the big, the big show every time he shows up somewhere. And but him and I had some conversations and he grew up racing late model stock cars, just like I did. So we had that common bond there. And, and Jeff's like, let me talk to him. And he called me back an hour or so later. He's like, look, he said, he really wants you to come to work for him. He's listened to your audio at Red Bull through Toyota for the last few years. He really thinks you can help him. He's going to do everything in his power to make it work. And it's been nothing, but he's, if he tells me he's going to do something, whether it's something for me, whether it's something for my, my youngest place, travel baseball, and we do fundraisers and he'll donate money or just, donate time he'll show up and just be present he's donated money to the high school for the basketball program and came mm -hmm. just he's the denny you see on the racetrack which he's changed a lot since he's had his girls obviously um but the denny that you see or hear the even that i saw from afar he's not that guy he, he's 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 still just denny hammer from chesterfield virginia that is just a local race late model guy who happened to make it so it's been good from that side he also happens to have three Daytona 500 victories, and they all have come with you. Yes. And I'm curious what that means to you because knowing, you know, the conversations that we've had on this show right now, we understand and you understand better than anybody that you make a tangible difference to him on those super speedway races. And it's a big deal anytime you win a race, whether it's a late model stock race in Chesterfield or whether it's the Daytona freaking 500. But you made a difference in those races and every race, but specifically on the super speedways. So winning not one, not two, but three of those races, two of them back to back. What does that mean to you? You know, uh, sitting back and reflecting on it, it, it's it's obviously huge. Like you said, I'm just a, and I don't know how much you know about about Kannapolis, North Carolina, but back in the day, Cannon Mills was the main employer around our area, and if you worked in Cannon Mills, you were known as a lint head because they were a cotton factory that made towels and sheets and rags and stuff. So you just, that's what they call it. If you worked in Cannon Mills, you're called a lint head. So I tell people all the time, I'm just a dumb redneck from Kannapolis, North Carolina. They just happened to, to make it at the top level of motorsports in the U S so, um, and grew up racing my whole life and been around it. So as spotters, we, we all hang our hats on, 
certain races, obviously the Daytona 500, the super speedway races where we are more involved than we are a lot of places. Um, we have more input in helping make decisions that, like I said, when they're in that cocoon with that full containment headrest, their sight lines are very narrow. They don't know everything that's going on. And you have to have the help to be able to move forward with the energy from the certain lines that are moving. So they rely on us a lot for the information to help make those decisions. Um, and the first one was really cool because we had dominated that race in 2016 for most of the race. And then we slid our tires getting on pit road there coming down to the last pit stop. And we had to take four tires. So we lost the lead and we were really just, just trying to stall that second lane out when it was trying to form, we'd pull up and take it and stall it out and get back in line. The third time we actually pulled out, which was taking the white flag, Carl Edwards, who was behind us at the time with damage, got a huge shove from behind him. So it closed our hole up. So now we're stuck. We have to try and take that run on the outside, but it was also the white flag lap, every man for himself, that kind of deal. Yeah. And we got that huge run down the back with the shove from Kevin Harvick and Joey Logano. And um, when Matt pulled up to block, you know, all I'm saying, middle, 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 get middle. And luckily we were able to get through there without wadding up all the Joe Gibbs racing cars and make it back to the check flag. <laughs> yep. So that one was cool. The second one was Danny Otelia that it was 100% my call. Uh, no, I guess the third one would have been 100% my call. But the second one, the, the third, the second one, obviously the first year we lost JD. Um, we went run one, two, three with us, Kyle and, and, Eric Jones coming across start finish line one, story two, three stuff story. Yeah. And working amongst ourselves as teammates, you know, we had Joey Logano and Joey is one of the best at super speedway racing. And we decided to, as, as us and KB running first and second to do the teammate deal on the front road to put where the 22 would be behind both of us and not just yeah. one of us. Um, if you can bury him as far deep in the field as you can with as good as he is, that's better off for the entire company. And then race lets you down. Him. Yeah. Yeah. So even though Kyle probably wanted to try and race it out, he knew that that was the best bet for the company. So he made a decision sitting there in the red flag to, okay, I'll let you down. But after that, it's every man for himself. And yep. for, luckily for the 11, the 22 and 34 with McDowell and Kyle got the racing mess themselves and we were able to get away and stay away. But the last one with the Ryan Newman incident, you know, we had the lead and we chose not to block down the backstretch. Cause they had, it was the, the six and 12 hooked up and they had such a huge run coming. Denny knew they would not be able to block the run without causing a big wreck. Like Too we've quick. seen years and years and years. So my, my thing to him was in our Denny, you know, we, we always, we protect our right rear with that package. So when I told him, you know, there's a huge, we, we got shoved a good ways out. The run's coming. You're not going to go to block it. He moved up to give them the bottom to force them to go under him instead of on the outside of him. That way he can grab their right rear and side draft their right rear. Yep. And we were able to pull the 12 off of the six. And my first initial radio transmission was get low, get low behind the 12. And he knew exactly what I meant. Get in behind him and start tandem with him. We'll be the first two that are tandem going down the into turn three. The six will be on an island by himself and we can yep. try and shove the 12 out. And then a lot of things had to happen right for it to obviously happen. You know, I was, I would have never wanted to see the wreck that Ryan had or anything else, but everything happened just perfectly that we were able to beat the 12 to the line by inches. But Denny on the radio, he came back and said, that was hundred percent. You, that was, that was 100% your call. You saw it. You put me in the right spot. Now other things had to happen for us to win the race, but yeah. So as a spotter, that's, 
that's all we're after. You know, like I said, I'm just a guy that shows up and does my job and goes home. But when you have an uh, influence on the race and the influence on the driver to help them make decisions that does ultimately work out, there's no cooler feeling in the world than knowing that, that you help win the biggest race that we have every year. And for it to be our third one, it was, it was definitely gratifying. You also sticking with Daytona, you have spotted, and I think you, you did it recently too, a 24 hour race at Daytona. You do that for action express. You, we talk about different experiences with Red Bull compared to, you know, all the other stuff that you've done across all three national series, spotting a 24 hour race had to be a different experience. I assume you didn't stay up for all 24 hours because that would be unsafe. You probably took naps and rotated, but that experience overall probably had to be very unique and is. It is. And it's, um, you know, it's a bucket list yeah, as, as a spotter, you know, first off, those of us that are blessed enough or lucky enough or thankful enough to be full-time spotters and do this for a living, we know how blessed we are. Um, the amount of time we have at home with our families versus other people is, in the sport or industry is a lot compared to other people that are working in the shop full time. But, uh, there's certain races that we want to do that, that just intrigue us or whatever, whether it's other, other series, other racing industries or whatever it may be. So yeah. years ago, I obviously when, when Red Bull shut down, Elton Sawyer, who was, who was now at NASCAR was actually running Red Bull at the time. Um, he went to work for action express racing, which is, owned by a businessman out of Florida and Jim France is part owner. So their shop was based in Denver and Elton had reached out and said, Hey, have an opportunity here. We've got Christian Fittipaldi in the car. We got Joe Albarbosa in the car. We're going to have Sebastian Bourdais in the car. We'd love for you to come and experience and spot these races. A lot of these guys never use spotters, but the one time we did use spotters with them, they loved it. Um, it just helped confirm what they were seeing or what they thought they were seeing, would you be interested? So I went to the shop and we sat down and talked and I got in the car and where I could see what they could see, which I think for a spotter is huge, understanding what those guys can and can't Definitely. see. Um, it's helps you understand and just do your job. I feel like way more, you're way, way more valuable when you understand what they can and can't see. For sure. So um, the first year I did that was 2010 and lo and behold, we win the race. We win the overall <laughs> Rolex 24 at Daytona. Which, Something about you and first time winning races and you know, the rest it, of history, man. It's just like mic drop here, you know. Yeah. Get it. But um, then back then we were using three spotters per car. Um, so you really only had to work basically eight hours and you broke it up in different, different hours. Mm -hmm. um, I've been fortunate enough to do it pretty much. I've taken one year off, I think, when my wife lost her mom. Um, a few years ago, I didn't go that following year, um, to stay home with her and just try and help her through the grieving process and all that. But, um, I've done it every year since 2010 and I've been lucky enough to win it twice with action express racing. Awesome. And now this year, um, the last few years, actually Mike Perman jr. Who comes full circle again, who still lives here in Kannapolis and is good friends of mine, but him and I both are on the same car. So we'll, That's you know, awesome. we'll, we'll take off and fly and we don't have to do any of the practices or anything with them. We don't have to do the roar or anything. So we just do the race only. So we'll fly out on Friday morning. We'll get to the racetrack and go check radios and check in and just sit down and chit chat with the crew chiefs and the drivers and stuff. And then when the race starts on Saturday, um, we, we found what works for us. A lot of guys break their hours up differently, but we do three hours on three hours off, six hours on six hours off. So you can at least, Oof 
have at least a five hour window there to go back to the hotel, which they get his hotel rooms right across the street at Daytona at the That's Daytona nice. hotel. So literally from time you get done with your shift, you can be at the hotel and be in the bed in 25, 30 minutes and at least like get five laps. Maybe. <laughs> yes. And maybe get five hours of sleep, you know, and feel refreshed. So we do three, we do three, six and threes, how we break it up. I know other guys do it differently, but that just seems to work it, for Mike and I, it's made us the freshest we've ever been at the end of the races. Yeah. Um, and then we fly home. We'll catch a flight and fly home Sunday after the race there with. So it's a, it's a condensed weekend with the race only, but it's another bucket list race that it's just, it's so different from everything that we do that it, it, it's a good kickoff to the year because that's the first race we get to work every year. Yeah. And, and it's, um, it's an experience that we look forward to. The drivers have really been open and, and really appreciative for what we do, even though the form of the racing they do in the past have never really had spotters. Um, so that side of it's gratifying as well. And it's just, I mean, the whole group at Action Express just make it really worth our while. So it's, it's a cool experience. What else is on your racing bucket list? Uh, obviously, the Indy 500 is on my bucket list. I actually had... I guess I had an opportunity to do it this year um, with my relationship now with Santino on Ooh. the IndyCar on the uh, Xfinity side. He reached out and said, Hey, which I knew we knew weeks leading in that he was going to have the opportunity to run the Indy 500. And we kept yeah. it, you know, kept it hush hush, but he got there for his first, I guess, session in early May. And, and he called me immediately after that first session. He's like, Hey, I know we probably can't make it happen, but if there's any way possible, I'd love to have you come do turn one for me for Andy. Even if it's just showing up and just doing the race only, he said, I'll figure out a way to get a, get a private plane to make sure you can get back for the 600. And I know logistic wise, it's going to be a problem. Could be a problem, but you can do the double. I would love to have you do that. And Honestly, I talked to my wife and I reached out to Chris Gapart, my crew chief, and I told him, like, look, you know, I know I'm a full-time employee of Joe Gibbs Racing and Joe Gibbs Racing is my number one priority. But do you think it could be, be possible to make it work? And obviously, this just logistic-wise and the unknowns, yeah. it was just going to be too close to cut. But that's a bucket list that I want to go be able to do one day when I'm done on the full-time cup side or, or sure. whatever that may be. But um, I've been lucky enough to go to spa with, with Vickers when he was running some of the, the road race stuff after he got out of the cup cars years ago. So, um, right now, just other than Indy, that's really the only one that's really still, still on my bucket list yeah. that just, I just got to figure out a way somehow, some way, whenever I'm done with the NASCAR stuff full time to make it happen. Yeah. I got no doubt you'll make it happen. Eventually it's the Indy 500. You got to do it. And now you got it in. Yes. Yeah. yeah that would be, you know, if I could do it with Santino, that would be great. But, um, I got some friends that I've networked with along the years through, yeah. through the 24 hour race that I've met down there that live in Indy and do IndyCar stuff full time. And, and just now that we're doing combined races, I've gotten to chat with a lot of those spotters who mm -hmm. do that stuff. Like we do the NASCAR stuff. So there's open lines of communication now. So I actually have more people that, that know me, know my name, know my history that would go to bat for me and say, Hey, give this guy a chance. Yeah. I think he'll do a good job for you. So that's, that's really all you need pause and we're back for now i i mentioned off the top guys come back next week for part two with our chat with chris again next week we get into some some deep stuff about his some stuff that went on in his personal life and his family but it was a much needed conversation uh for people just to listen to and to hear him speak about the 
the unbelievable things that have happened in his life personally. We also got into some stuff on track as well, even though we got into a ton of it right there in the conversation. Winning at Daytona, winning at Darlington. You heard some of our conversation about that before um, and how the job has kind of just changed over the years, all these different things that happened. Uh, also, what happened when Tim Fito dropped the sandwich off the top of the pagoda at Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Stay tuned for next week. We'll get to that chat then. Chris, I know that you're going to be back next week with us, my friend, even though we already wrapped up the conversation. But uh, I know you're listening because, as you heard there, he's a listener of the show. Like, not even just recently. He said he's been listening for a while. Blows my mind. Literally mind-blowing. But, Chris, appreciate you hopping on, my friend, and giving me so much time. Appreciate you listening. Hopefully, you're uh, having a safe travel out there to Vegas right now, and maybe you got me in your ears. So, you're the man, brother. Appreciate you. Let's briefly touch on Las Vegas Motor Speedway this upcoming weekend for the Cup, Xfinity, and Truck Series. Also, the Arkham Menard Series West out there in Sin City. The start of the round of 12 for the Cup Series. Start of the playoffs in general for the Xfinity Series. Start of the round of 8 for the Camping World Truck Series. But let's start with the Cup Series and focus on those guys and gals. Is it going to be a Penske show or is it going to be a JGR show? Is it going to be Kyle Larson again? Or is it going to be the field? Is this going to be a real wild card race? Or is it going to be a regular race that's predictable like we all think is going to happen on mile and a half tracks? I don't know the answer to any of those questions. And that's why we got to tune in this weekend. Obviously, Kyle Larson won earlier in the spring. He could possibly do that again. He's my pick to do it. But also, Penske's had a lot of success at Vegas. Keselowski, multiple-time winner there. Logano, multiple-time winner there. Blaney ran really well there in the spring and has over the past couple years. Joe Gibbs Racing on 550 tracks this season historically has not been amazing. But at the same time, we've seen that they've come on a bit stronger as of late. So we'll see if that momentum is able to carry over, if we could see the 19, 20, 11, and 18 running up front. I know Chris Lambert's going to have that 11 car high, wide, and handsome out in Vegas. So we'll see. And a lot of drivers last week were saying that even though Talladega and the Roval are in this round of the playoffs, Las Vegas could be the wild card because Roval, they kind of know what to expect now going back there for a handful of years. They know who's good on road courses. They know who's not. Talladega, you kind of go into that race with the mindset of, okay, we're not going to finish. So anything better than that will be just that, a plus and an added bonus. And that leaves Vegas, which is a mile and a half. In the late months, the late days of September, temperatures are going to be hot. The racing may be a little bit different than it was in the spring. Teams may have been saving some stuff to debut at this point of the playoffs that they had not really shown their hand for earlier in the season when we went to Vegas, which seems like years ago at this point. So I don't know what's going to happen. My pick to win the race is Larson, which is not a surprise. But I am interested to see if JGR or Penske can A, challenge Larson, or B, which one of those teams is going to be running up front on a more consistent basis throughout that 400-mile race. South Point 400 on Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Trucks and Xfinity also in action. Also, I didn't even mention, is Kevin Harvick going to get his revenge? I don't know if he can or will do it this weekend at Las Vegas because mile-and-a-half track, high speeds, danger associated with that. He kind of understands that. Now, don't get me wrong. He can and probably will make the Nine's life a living hell, but I think we'll probably look at the Roval or Martinsville, maybe even Phoenix too, at a track where Harvard could 
probably get his revenge and have it best served at one of those places where the speeds are a little bit lower. It's easier to get closer to somebody and really hinder their ability to race. So, again, Las Vegas this weekend. Who's your money on? Place your bets. Long nuts of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. Mike Wheeler has been named the competition director of 2311 Racing. And Booty Barker, remember him? Crew chief for Jermaine Racing, longtime veteran atop the pit box, is the new crew chief for Bubba Wallace. That news broke before the race last weekend at Bristol, so Booty already has one race under his belt with Bubba. That's a good duo, Booty and Bubba. It's like a band name. Rodney Childers has signed a contract extension with Stuart Haas Racing for years to come, so even though he uh, had some misfortune at the end of the Bristol race, looking on the bright side, he will remain at SHR for years to come. Big Machine Records, who obviously is the team and sponsor of Jade Buford and the 48 in Xfinity, they're also sponsoring Sam Mayer at Las Vegas this weekend for Junior Motorsports. Speaking of Junior Motorsports, Josh Berry is filling in once again for Michael Annette, who continues to recover from that stress fracture in his leg. It's a sixth race this season that he has missed. So hope he just gets better and he's able to finish out the year on a high note. And We don't know for next year, but hopefully he puts his health first. Tarleton is sponsoring Kyle Larson this weekend. They have been a longtime supporter of his dirt racing efforts and escapades. So that's going to be an all-black number five car. It's going to be different than what we've seen earlier this year, but good to see a new sponsor coming into the sport. Always love to hear and see that. Xfinity is getting a new logo for next year. The Xfinity Series logo currently has some red in it, and next year it's going to be purple. Purple, purple gang. Love to see that. It's a pretty cool logo too. Go check it out on their social media accounts. Stephen Parsons, a former guest on Victory Lane, go listen to it. He is going to be full-time with BJ McLeod Motorsports in the Xfinity Series for next season. And last but not least, at the time of this recording at least, the last lug nut of the week, Ty Dillon's going to run for Jordan Anderson Racing at Las Vegas this weekend in the 31 car with South Point on the car. That'll wrap things up for episode 126 of Victory Lane 2.0, part one with Chris Lambert, part two coming next week. Again, I just I can't believe he gave me two hours of his time in some of the busiest weeks of the year. He is so cool, so nice, so informative. Great conversation this week, and it's an even better one next week. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and review iTunes, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. We should be available there for your consumption. And if we are not, drop me a line, and I will try to rectify that issue for you. And honestly... Um, if, if you're listening to this episode and you're like, wow, that was a great conversation, tweet me about it at Davy Center. I want to know what you guys think about it. Uh, reach out to me on my Facebook page, Instagram, whatever, TikTok. I, I don't care, but let me know that you're listening. Let me know that you are understanding that I'm asking you to tell me about this show that you're listening to because I want to hear if you're actually listening. I want to hear what you thought of the conversation with Chris. I want to hear what you think I can do better and guess that you think that I could have a good conversation with as the offseason approaches so I can try to line those up for you guys because I do this all for you guys, for the listener. So I appreciate you guys listening, appreciate your guys' support, and I appreciate you, Chris, for listening to the show. really do. That'll wrap things up for this week, everybody. I'll catch you back next week where we will recap the racing at Las Vegas and, of course, preview Talladega Super Speedway. Peace and love, everybody. <laughs>